here with uh, Richard Hughes, and Richard is a distinguished uh, Church of Christ historian, and uh, as far as I know, you're the premier Church of Christ historian. You said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know. That, uh, so you did your PhD in, in history at the University of Iowa? His, history of Christianity. In uh, 1972, mm-hmm. okay, and uh, an MA in, at Abilene, and then a BA at Harding, and then you were at. Uh, you're right now. You're a uh, scholar in residence at, at Lipscomb. At Lipscomb, uh-huh. Lipscomb, and you're mainly doing research there, or are you teach. Well, uh, I teach one course a semester, and work with the dean of the College of Bible and Ministry to launch a an initiative for Lipscomb faculty to help them make connections between their teaching and their scholarship and their faith and their sense of vocation. So it's kind of a factory development piece. And then and then I write and do research. We, Richard and I just had breakfast, and, and uh, it's always wonderful to discover someone of a kindred spirit who is, uh, who, uh, there are not many of us who are nonviolent, uh, and uh, strangely enough, in a movement that began with its roots in pacifism, Richard, t- tell us a little bit about that. You were saying that at breakfast, but this was this was sort of new for me. Tell us how you discovered that and how you yourself. Well, Paul, you you say it was new to you, and it was new to me as well. Uh, I I discovered I really discovered pacifism, uh, Abilene Christian when I was doing my master's degree. And Everett Ferguson, who directed my MA thesis, put a book in my hands and said, I think you should read this book. And the book was Franklin H. Littell's The Anabaptist View of the Church, published in 1952. So it's quite an old book now, but still a fine book. And I think Everett put the book in my hands because he knew I was interested in who other than churches of Christ, Christian churches, over the course of Christian history, had advocated a restoration of the early church. Mm. And it was a question that, that I had, and I'd wondered that for years. And, and so Everett put this book in my hands, and the book was about the 16th century Anabaptists. And what I discovered in that book was that here were people in the 16th century who regularly used the language of restoration, restitution, but didn't mean by it what we meant. You know, if, 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 if our question was, you know, how do we cover the forms and structures of the early church, their question was, what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? So let's emphasize this, because we, we call ourselves the Restoration Movement, but it, it is a focus, a kind of rationalistic focus, perhaps, oh, yeah. out of the 19th century, on forms, structures, and your, your point here is, we may have missed the very... We missed it. We missed the heart of it. We missed the, the heart uh-huh. of the message. Uh, you know, I've, over the years I've come to believe that the, the gospel message really has two components, uh, vertical and horizontal, vertical, God's grace. God says, I extend, I extend this grace to you. You don't deserve it, but here it is. Uh-huh. And the horizontal, now you extend that same grace to your neighbors. Grace and grace. 
And I never heard any of that as a kid growing up. I never heard about God's grace extended to me. I never heard about pacifism, nonviolence. Um, of course, we talk about loving our neighbor. I mean, everyone mm-hmm. does. But mm-hmm. we never fleshed that out all that much. But here were people who used the language of restoration who were really getting to the heart of the biblical message. Uh, that we treat other people the way God has treated us. And it was revolutionary for me. And for the longest time, uh, I felt pretty badly about my own heritage. I I thought, you know, how do these people in the 16th century get this Mm -hmm. when we haven't? And then I signed a contract to write a history of the Churches of Christ, and the old archivist at Abilene Christian R.L. Roberts told me that you'll never get the story of the Church of Christ right if you don't begin with Barton Stone. I knew nothing about Stone. So I began reading Stone. And lo and behold, here is this very same message of radical Christian ethics, selling your goods, giving to the poor, nonviolence, living in the shadow of the second coming, Uh uh, your allegiance is to the kingdom of God, not to the United States, all this kind of radical stuff Uh that I'd seen in the Anabaptist. Lo and behold, it's in my own tradition, except I never knew it. And no one, Uh very few people, seem to know it. Oh, yeah, my story, I was just telling Richard, is very similar. Actually, one of my own students (laughs) pointed out that in part of the heritage that I was that I was a part of was was uh, supporting a nonviolence that I had already been teaching, but but had not clued into. And so I guess the the question is, what happened? What happened to? In other words, I uh, I know that uh, James McClendon, when he traces our history, he says, well, we're out of the we're uh, not historically, but theologically, we're Anabaptists. But I don't think we're anywhere near that. We, in some way, our, our origins are obscured. What do you think happened? Well, you know, I think several things happened. Uh, number one, you know, there are two clearly two wings of our movement in the early years: Stone and Campbell. And when McClendon says that we have Anabaptist roots of, of sorts. I think he's talking about the stone wing of the movement, because they mm-hmm. clearly did. I mean, they mm-hmm. advocated allegiance to the kingdom of God only, not to any other nation, mm-hmm. pacifism, selling goods, giving all this radical Christian ethics. But Campbell didn't bring that peace. And uh, stone really comes out of the great revivals. Campbell comes out of the Enlightenment. So for Campbell... As he said so often, the, the, the Bible, he said, is a book of facts. Mm-hmm. This is a quote from Campbell. And he said, we should approach the Bible as a scientist approaches his or her work. So we read the Bible through a scientific lens. Well, if you read the Bible through that kind of a lens, you're never going to come up with this radical vision that the Stone understood. And then what happened was, I think, over time, the Campbell side of the movement simply swamped the Stone side of the movement. Uh, among other things, it's a whole lot easier 
Yeah. You believe in this rational gospel rather than to practice this radical Christian ethic. But it took a long time, but by the time I come along, I was born in 1943, uh, there were very few people who even remembered that this was even a part of our heritage. And now it's, for the most part, dead and gone. Yeah. So, in some way, and you said this, and I don't, I'm not going to hold you to it, but and 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 I I felt complete empathy, sympathy that apart from nonviolence, I'm not sure what is left of the gospel. Uh, that is, can we? I'm not sure what Christianity amounts to if we're not promoters of the peaceable kingdom. Uh, how I'm I'm curious how literally you you meant that. The peaceable kingdom is the heart of the gospel message. Uh, it, you know, one of the, I think when we had breakfast together, uh, I made a comment like, you know, is there any other kind yeah. of Christianity other than, well, no. And uh, uh, a, a Christianity that, that rejects nonviolence and embraces violence uh, in the interest of uh, national power, uh, in the interest of advancing national agendas, what what kind of a Christianity is this? Uh, it's a little hard to square, it mm. seems to me, with the teachings of Jesus. And I don't know that, I mean, that, that uh, what value there might be. And I'm, I'm not saying, oh, we got to draw a line and say these people are in or these people are out. But I think what you're describing, there are teachings that make us Christian, that are definitive of Christianity, and that if we do not hold to these teachings, there is a sense that the name Christian is a misnomer. Is a misnomer. Well, I mean, Christian obviously refers to Jesus the Christ. And, you know, if, if, we, read, if we read the Gospels and take Jesus seriously... He is promoting a very radical vision of peacemaking, of compassion for the poor, of standing with marginalized people. Uh, this, this is who Jesus is. And you know, what, one of the things I think that allowed us to lose sight of this early on was, again, back to Alexander Campbell, you know, Campbell divided uh, history up into these dispensations, so the patriarchal dispensation, and then the Mosaic dispensation, and then the Christian dispensation. But Campbell would argue that the Christian dispensation began in Acts 2. And everything prior to Acts 2 belongs to the Old Covenant. Uh So in effect, what Campbell did, he severed Jesus and his ethics, and and also the prophets, the Hebrew prophets. So, I mean, for us, Christianity begins with Acts 2. It's all about the church, the forms and structures of the church. But Jesus really gets lopped off. So there are a lot of things that come together to uh, help obscure for those of us who were raised in this tradition, uh-huh. help obscure this radical message yeah. of Jesus. So that, and, and, uh, But this is not pe- peculiar to Campbell, is it? that we have a a division, a sharp division, 
between the Gospels so that when we teach what Christianity is, we don't quite know what to do with the life of Christ because our theology is such that, oh, well, the church and the kingdom of God begin, you know, that that's, uh, that's subsequent to the ethics of Jesus. And so isn't that sort of evangelicalism as a whole that it is split off, it's cut off from its ethical roots. Well, you know, you mentioned evangelicalism, Paul. It's interesting that evangelicalism in America had a keen sense of the radical ethics of Jesus up until maybe the very late 19th century, early 20th century. Uh, the rise of the fundamentalist movement, World War One. But, you know, evangelicalism, with a few exceptions, for example, Jim Wallace and Sojourner's Mm -hmm. Magazine, uh, Ron Sider, uh, some of these people keep that vision alive. But but the main body of evangelicalism is just like the Churches of Christ and the Christian churches have pretty much uh, deserted that original vision. And so if... Christianity is cut off from its ethic. In other words, what, I think that what we're describing is a uh, what James McClendon calls a practical salvation. That is, there's no difficulty in identifying who is and is not a Christian. It's one who practices what Jesus taught. That's right. Can you be a Christian and not practice the things that Jesus taught? <laughs> I don't see how that's possible. And and ha- I think part of and again I may be historically inaccurate in tracing this. You know, Campbell was not himself uh, in favor of the evangelical alliance. You know that he he was himself critical of that. That he and and of course the original sin and the the Calvinistic parts of the Calvinistic aspect. Mm-hmm. But I think that that a key part that was there in the Christian churches and has been lost in evangelicalism is the sense of an embodied Christianity that you get in the church. Uh, you know, in, in that sense, and it, correct me if I'm wrong there. No, I think you're exactly <clears throat> right. Uh, one more piece about that, though. One of the things that I think a lot of folks in, well, let me just use my own mother to illustrate this mm-hmm. point. It's funny the things that you remember from when you were very, very young. I mean, you think, why do I remember that? And, you know, but you do. You remember these. So one of my memories, I'm growing up in, in Dallas. I'm probably eight or nine. And my mother is talking on the telephone. I remember this vividly. Back in the days when the phone hangs on the wall and mm-hmm. you have to stand there and, and you have a party line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right, Young yeah. people will have no, no idea of what we're talking about, that. but we remember it. And so my mother was talking with someone, one of her friends, and having a theological discussion. And I was listening to this. And I remember my mother telling this woman that we should never pray that part of the Lord's Prayer that says, Thy kingdom come. Because the kingdom came. It came on the day of Pentecost in the form of the church and then was restored by Alexander Campbell. So why would we pray, Thy kingdom come? Well, of course, I've come to see, as I've gotten older, that my mother was just mistaken, <laughs> that you know, the kingdom is 
certainly not uh, coterminous with the church. And and when we, you know, it's not, in my view at least, it's not hard to figure out what, when Jesus uses the phrase the kingdom of God uh, in Luke or in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven, it's not hard to figure out what that is. You get your credence concordance, you run the references, and in almost every time that phrase, kingdom of God, is used, there's a context. And the context is compassion for the poor, uh-huh. feeding the hungry, clothing the naked. Uh-huh. Um, Matthew 25, you know, you did these things to enter into the kingdom. Rich young ruler, he can't sell his goods to give to the poor. Jesus says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. But, you know, that can be replicated. So the, so the thing that, that drove people at Barton Stone and in the Church of Christ history, Barton Stone, Talbert Fanning, David Lipscomb, uh, uh, R.H. Bowl, uh, you know, the whole host of key people through the 19th into the early 20th century is their allegiance is to this kingdom of God, this, this kingdom that brings an alternative reality oh. which we believe one day will triumph over all the earth but it's not yet triumphed. Their allegiance is to that kingdom. But as we more and more then begin to confuse the church with the kingdom, that again we begin to lose that radical ethic that is so much a part of the New Testament teaching on the kingdom of God. It seems to me at least. So you would distinguish between <clears throat> the church and the kingdom? Absolutely. So how do we, how do us one, in other words, isn't, uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm curious about that because, you know, in the, in the Church of Christ, in the Christian church, we've always identified being a member of the church as we've connected that with salvation. And of course, at some level, at a, you know, if we say, oh, we're the only church or we're, uh, obviously we've fallen into a kind of legalism. But isn't it the case that the way that we're saved is in and through the church? Sure. Uh, we're, we're saved through the church, the body of Christ. But the, and the church, as I read the New Testament, is the manifestation of the kingdom on earth, but is certainly not the fullness of the kingdom. One day the kingdom will come in his fullness. Oh. In the meantime, the church points toward that. We live in the church, we participate in the church, we we enjoy salvation in and through the church. So the, the church is a manifestation of the coming kingdom, but is not the fullness. Of, and why would I say that? Because, because the New Testament picture of the kingdom is of this radical, countercultural oh. reality where... Uh, where, the, where the, the poor are lifted up, where the hungry are fed, where, you know, and we don't live in that kind of a world. And the church is, it's a manifestation of the church, but it too has fallen. It's broken in so many ways. So the question, uh, you know, you're, you're uh, making a disconnect. This is sort of John Howard Yoder's point <clears throat> with the politics of Jesus. Yes. Is that well? The, the the church is a politic. The church is a culture. The church, or it is supposed to be, that it is a, a, an alternative form of ethics. 
that would seem then to usher in the kingdom. That's right. That's right. And the church, the church should be an embodiment of the kingdom of God on earth. So often it isn't, I mean, as you and I both mm. know, but ideally this is what the church would be. And so if the church is not the kingdom, <laughs> is, it, is it truly the, the, the church that Christ is? Well, you know, if, it, if the church is not striving to live out kingdom values and kingdom ethics, mm. then you really have to raise some questions about to what extent really is it the church at all, or is it mm. just a social club where people come together and feel good about themselves with a nice veneer of piety? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, 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 this next point I can bring up, I feel, because you've done it in your paper. You specifically mentioned the election of Donald Trump and the idea, here's a man who, you know, clearly is, uh, he said that, you know, Barack Obama was not born in America. He, he's, to my mind, and you've said as much, that he's promoted a kind of white supremacy. He's, he's a blatant racist. And you have evangelical Christians who are the key supporters. What is the percentage? Eighty-one percent. Eighty-one percent of evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. And, I might add, are for the most part still with him. Whatever he does. <laughs> Whatever he does, it doesn't make any difference. And you have to wonder, what in the world? What What are they thinking? Uh, and you know, and I I've read from some of these evangelicals, and they they compare compare Donald Trump to just King Cyrus. You know that God God will sometimes use evil rulers to achieve. Well, that's true. God could sometimes do that, but why would we jump to that conclusion? Why would we um, that he uses evil to make good, good abound? Yeah, I mean clearly God does that, but why would I? want to assume that God is using this man who is so fundamentally anti-Christian. Why would I assume that in some way God is using him? I I don't, I just, I, I don't get it. And so it seems to be a marker. In other words, I don't know that Donald Trump, if he had some measure of evil, but the, the, the difference seems to be that he's blatantly, openly this way, and that he's captured evangelicalism. Those two things have come together, which to my mind, in your picture of the kingdom of God, of an authentic church, that uh, what this seems to be a marker of is that if you can do these things in the name of Christ, it's no longer Christianity. Too much? No, I would agree. Sure, it, it's it's no sure it's no longer it's something else. It's patriotism. It's it's uh, you know this is uh, Frederick Douglass who you also quote, uh, and and I think uh, James Cone mm-hmm. would would they sound very similar? They James do. Cone and Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. James Cone says what we call Christianity is of the Antichrist. Is that too much, or, or no, no? And, uh, and you know, Frederick Douglass says that, um, and I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he, the the point he makes is that he said there is the widest 
possible difference between the religion of Jesus Christ. And he said, I love the peaceable. He uses that word. I love the peaceable religion of Jesus Christ. But he said there is the widest possible difference between the religion of Jesus Christ and the religion of this land. And he he said to, to somehow call the religion of this land that engages in slavery and uh, this and abusing other people for gain to call that Christianity is a gross misnomer. Those are pretty radical words, but I think I would have to agree with him. Yeah, I mean Christianity, it's it's got to mean something. It doesn't mean whatever you want it to mean. Let me let me make a kind of silly statement and then explain it. And that is that what we're describing is that salvation is a practical salvation. It's something you can see. Oh, that somebody that loves their neighbor, somebody that uh, that puts on the, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. So that salvation is these sets of practices that we learn in the church. Can we even talk about this thing, this misnomer, as being connected in any way to salvation? That this is not salvation, this is a form of damnation. It's death. Sure, it's a form of death. It's death and, and damnation. You're exactly right. You know, so much, so much of what passes for Christianity in the United States has far more to do with what Robert Bella described American civil religion Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. than anything remotely approaching the Christian religion. The fact that that people may sing hymns and, and offer prayers and use the name of God and use the name of Jesus doesn't mean it's Christian. When you look underneath that veneer and you see the values that are so often driving uh-huh. uh, nationalism, patriotism, America first, uh-huh. uh, war-making, profit, uh, money-making, on down the line you go. And, and in, you know, we're back to Frederick Douglass. You know, there is, he puts it, there is the widest possible difference between the, the peaceable religion of Jesus and what passes for Christianity in this country, says Douglas. Which, which, and I'm, I'm asking this because it's a dilemma for me. You still identify with the Church of Christ, and you still, you've taught your entire life in Church of Christ institutions. Uh, I'm a little unsure myself uh, as to where to go, what you know, and, and so explain to me your how you've made peace with with that. Well, I don't really make peace with it. Uh, the, the The fact of the matter is, I have, let me put it this way: I have a very dear friend named Samuel S. Hill Jr. You may know the name, Paul. I don't know, but Sam was for many years widely regarded as the dean of historians of religion in, in the South. in in America. Sam is now 90 years old in failing health. We visited Sam just a few weeks ago in Florida. And Sam said to me, he said, you know, Richard, Sam was raised Southern Baptist, is now an Episcopalian. 
But he said, he said, Richard, you and I both come out of a world. What he meant by that, we, we come out of very specific worlds. We're not generic people. Uh-huh. And he's exactly right. Uh, I could not, I could no more leave the churches of Christ than I can shed my own skin. Uh-huh. It's so much a part of who I am. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, does that mean that I'm always at peace with it? Of course not. Uh, I, I have so many quarrels with this tradition. But having said that, I've been fortunate, my wife and I have been fortunate to live in areas where we find kindred spirits. Uh-huh. People in the Church of Christ that share our values. Uh-huh. Uh, in Nashville, many of those kinds of people. Uh-huh. So as long as I can find those kinds of people uh-huh. that um, I can talk with, then you know, they really, in a way, become my church. Yeah. That community becomes my church. Uh, and... And you know, and there are ways in which the Church of Christ. I mean, I can I can see tremendous improvement just in my lifetime. For example, when I was a kid growing up, Churches of Christ virtually never preached grace. They just didn't. Oh. I never heard the gospel of grace until I was at Harding College. Uh-huh. Today, it's common. I mean, everyone virtually talks about God's grace. I mean, that's a great improvement. Uh-huh. What we still don't talk much about is what Barton Stone and David Lipscomb saw so clearly is the meaning of the kingdom of God, our allegiance to that kingdom, what that what that should mean mm-hmm. for our churches. And we're, we're still not there. And, and that's uh, one of the things I was curious about in your paper. Grace is a, is a word that a good Calvinist throws around. They talk about grace all the time. But it seems like it's a kind of empty grace, that it's a, a grace that is in no way embodied, that if grace is simply something that we experience in a kind of pietistic individualism, then I'm not sure that that's New Testament grace. And so when, when you say the word grace, um, give us some flesh, give us some, some substance. What does that word mean? Well, grace, it seems to me, is always corporate. Uh, the, the, the American evangelical gospel, as I understand it, has everything to do with Jesus and me and with the world to come. Uh-huh. It's privatistic and it's otherworldly. That's not grace. Uh, it seems to me the way grace is presented in the New Testament, it's not Jesus and me, it's Jesus and us, Jesus and community. Uh, and it means I live my life for others. It's not about, and it's not just going to heaven when I die. Uh, salvation is the experience of God's grace and the experience of God's love in the context of this community in the here and now. Of course, one hopes that we'll all go to heaven when we die. Uh-huh. I'm not denying that to mention. Uh-huh. But it, it, there's a very much in this worldly, you know, when, when Paul talks about the resurrection, he talks about the resurrection body, uh, this renewed earth. I mean, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he said it was good. And he put human beings on this earth. I mean, this is our home. So, 
the way so many Christians make grace into something that's very privatistic uh-huh. about Jesus and me and it's all about going to heaven when I die and escaping this world uh-huh. just seems to me to be profoundly anti-biblical. And so grace is, the, this is kind of the new perspective, I think, on Paul. That what, what tends to happen, we pit law against grace. But what, what we have, in fact, is a picture of a promise given to Abraham, embodied and pointed, pointing to the church, in which the church is on a continuum with Israel. So it's not law against grace. But it is, in fact, then the fulfillment law is a pointer to the grace that there is no such thing as, you know, uh, Old Testament over and against New, Israel over and against the church, or that that it has always been. Always been grace. Yeah. Um, God chooses Israel through God's grace. Uh, God leads his people through God. I mean, God's grace is all through the Hebrew Bible. And interestingly, uh, it's very difficult to find in the Hebrew Bible uh, any reference to, quote, going to heaven when we die. I mean, the Hebrew Bible is very much focused on, on living out God's love and grace here, now for one another, building that beloved community. It uh-huh. seems to me is the heart of the Hebrew text. And uh, you wonder, how did, how did Christians get so diverted from that profoundly biblical vision of this world is God's world? How did we get so diverted into this? And, you know, it strikes me, that, and you would know more about this than I would, but uh, given your work in philosophy, but it strikes me this is far more Greek mm-hmm. than it is Hebrew. Oh, absolutely. It has way more to do with yeah, Plato yeah. than it does with Moses yeah. or the Apostle Paul or Jesus. Yeah, that's always the, the thing that be, it's befuddling because uh, people imagine that in, in, uh, an engagement with philosophy is in some way you know, oh, you know, that they accuse me of doing. Well, I, what I would say is, no, actually, you're the one that does philosophy and has allowed your philosophy to displace Christianity. If you don't know a little bit of something about philosophy, you may not be able to discern. You've made a departure, and you're more Greek than than uh, Hebrew mm-hmm. uh, or mm-hmm. Christian. So... So the the and I in your paper I may have this is one of the things that you brought up is that in the Church of Christ you say that we have focused upon the commands more than the grace and isn't isn't it that I mean what you're describing is legalism that in some way we've fallen into legalism and. Why is that? How is it that we've, in other words, is it still the heritage of the Protestant Reformation? We've inherited that old, but I'm curious, why is it that we've we've missed God's grace and fallen into this kind of legalistic understanding? Well, I don't know all the reasons uh, for that, Paul, but one one thing I would say Legalism is a whole lot easier than accepting God's grace. 
because uh, you know I can keep rules, but accepting God's grace, the first requirement is for me to admit my own inadequacy, and that's tough to do. Uh, for me to really humble myself and acknowledge that I am powerless, inadequate, uh, th- that the only way out of this is through God's love and redemption. So t- to really accept God's grace requires, uh, it's, it's a very difficult thing to do. And most people don't want to admit that about themselves. So it's a whole lot easier just to keep following the law and then I can cl- look how good I am. Okay, look what I did. Now there are a lot, I'm sure, a lot of other historic reasons why, uh, you know, in churches of Christ, I think we've never, ever had a very robust theology of grace. You know, uh-huh. Campbell didn't. Campbell believed in grace, uh-huh. but I think Campbell felt that everyone in Christendom understood this. Why did he need to reinforce what everyone already understood? So he talks about organization of the church, how should we worship, he talks about baptism, various requirements. I think grace was a presupposition for him, but he didn't talk much about it. And then the second generation lost it altogether. So we've just never had much of a robust theology of of grace in our tradition. And I'm a little confused myself because, you know, what we're describing in, in the Hebraic understanding that should have been in that is a part of the the Christian understanding is that grace is channeled to us in and through the body of Christ it's channeled to us in and through the community and in some way you know what the the predicament that Israel gets caught up on is that when we talk about works of the law what they're actually talking about is circumcision the markers of you know sabbath keeping of uh uh you know food laws so the uh, it is this ethnic, these ethnic markers that are actually works of the law, and it's almost like we've picked up. In other words, when we, when you are using the term that we focused on the commands, it's not really that we focused on the ethical commands, but we focused again. Maybe it goes back to Campbell's rationalistic. Is this the? Oh, I, I, absolutely, and you know the, the way. The, the way Campbell defines the New Testament, and he says this more than once, I mean, quite a number of times, he says, he says the Bible is a book of facts. Facts. Mm. Now that's a little amazing. And we should approach the Bible as a scientist approaches his, so his or her work. So we read the Bible through a scientific lens, and I've often, sometimes I explain Church of Christ students, I help them to see this by by referencing what we in the Churches of Christ call the plan of salvation. And I ask the students, can you find even one verse in the biblical text that lays out what we call the plan of salvation? Does it exist? Well, no, of course. It, it simply doesn't exist. Yeah. So how do we come up with it? Uh-huh. Well, when a scientist does his or her work, the scientist does an experiment and puts the results on the table. 
does another experiment, puts the results on the table. Maybe another experiment, maybe another experiment, maybe four, five, six, seven, eight experiments, puts the results on the table, then looks at the results and draws the conclusion. Uh-huh. That's exactly the way we get the plan of salvation. So we ransack the New Testament. Uh, here's a verse that says you must believe to be saved. And here's a verse that says believe and be baptized. Here's a verse that says repent. And you put all that together and you draw the conclusions like a good scientist would. Uh-huh. And you come up with this composite, this plan of salvation. It's, it's interesting, the very first college that was established in our movement was not Bethany College. It was Bacon College. Named for Francis Bacon, founder of the scientific method. And the president of the school was was Campbell's good friend, Walter Scott. And Walter Scott gave the inaugural oration the the year the school began. And in that oration, he did not extol Jesus Christ. Well, maybe to some degree he did. But the whole thrust of that inaugural address was to extol Lord Bacon. Francis Bacon and the scientific method. Uh, I mean, the, the churches of Christ on our Campbellian side, our roots are in the scientific method. And it's pretty hard to move from the scientific method to an understanding of grace and community. Uh, I mean, you, you just don't get there. I, I think Stone was moving in that direction with his sense of the kingdom of God. And, and the, re- the requirements to love each other as God has loved us. But even in stone, you don't find a lot of talk about God's grace. Yeah. Uh, so it's just never been a fundamental part of the way we thought in, in this tradition. Uh, it, you, you've, you've piqued my interest here, and I don't want to wear you down here, but the, the, how is it that you have come to this appreciation of grace, uh, that that you're, the the language here that you're using, it's not the typical evangelical. I mean, uh, notions of grace. It's not. Uh, uh, it, 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 I, and I, I have a feeling that you mean something by this term. For you, this is a very important term that is an encompassing. Because even in the paper that you're going to present. You said this is what can make the difference. So, spell. Can you put? How did I come to this? Yeah. How did you? Well, I came to it first of all because, as a kid growing up in the churches of Christ, uh, I grew up with a load of guilt. Mm. You know, I mean, when you're an adolescent and you do all the things that you know, you, you know these things that you know, I. When I was 10 years old, I'd go out with a preacher's kid in San Angelo, Texas, on Sunday afternoon down in what we called Sulphur Draw, which was a low area out in West Texas. Nothing out there but mesquite trees and cactus and cow patties. And he and I would sit out there Sunday afternoons and smoke cigarettes, (laughs) and we'd tell dirty jokes and cuss. And we'd have the best time, but of course, the next day I just felt horrible. Mm. You know, but I just you know, I I just grew up this load of guilt, mm. and never heard the good news of forgiveness mm. until Harding College. And I was in a class in the Book of Romans. 
taught by, do you know the name Jimmy Allen? You may not know that name. It, Jimmy Allen would be a household name in Churches of Christ, uh -huh. certainly for people my age. Uh -huh. uh, was a professor at Harding and a great preacher. I mean, a great preacher. So he's teaching his course on the book of Romans. And I remember the day he came to Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he quit teaching and he went to preaching. And he, I mean, he talked about forgiveness. And that we are, if we are in Christ Jesus, we are in grace. And God has forgiven us and accepted us. Not because we get it right, but because, but in spite of the fact that we get it so wrong, mm. and there were 160 kids in that classroom, I think none of whom had ever heard of grace. And that night there was a revival on the Harding College campus, mm. a revival of the spirit, kids who felt liberated for the first time. So that was my introduction to grace, but then. I went to the University of Iowa for my Ph.D. work and took a course under George Wolfgang Farrell, an old German professor, just charismatic as he could be, and a course on the theology of Martin Luther. Hmm. And Farrell began to unpack Luther's understanding of grace. It was just, to me, unspeakably marvelous mm. and and of course I began to get nuances from Luther that I had not gotten at Harding College mm. uh, began to see you know the, the paradoxes at work and the uh, and you know for Luther I mean there's simply no room for human achievement none mm. I mean, there's, there's human achievement is nothing mm. it's all God's grace mm. So that was my introduction to grace. But then it wasn't until I discovered the Anabaptists that I began to see here are people who were putting God's grace to work in human relationships, uh -huh. in community. Uh -huh. So now grace begins to be expanded. Uh -huh. uh, so it's not just Jesus and me. It's Jesus and me and community as we live for others. So that we receive God's grace as a as a conduit of that grace is that we're conduits. Yeah. Yes, we're conduits. God's grace should flow through us to the neighbor, and you know, and just as just as God extends His grace to us, even though we don't merit that grace in the least, the implication then is when we see people who we think don't deserve mm. well it makes no difference right we right. extend that grace to everyone because god has extended that grace to us can one be a a receiver and not a conduit i don't know how you can <laughs> i don't know how you can just receive it yeah but see this it seems to me this is sort of the, the typical evangelical understanding mm. of grace right. it's, god gives me this grace and i get to heaven it's like a, you know in Monopoly, a get get out of jail free card. You know, grace uh -huh. is your get out of jail free card and go to heaven when you die. But it, that's genuine grace in the New Testament is always grace for the other, 
grace in community, grace in human solidarity. Uh, so there's a very uh, there's a, a very slight nuance that that is huge here, and that is that we're describing grace as this this practice that we put into place. So it's not that one is saved through the practices. But the practices, in a sense, are the salvation. The ethics are not something you add on. The ethics are salvific, inherently. Is that too strong? Yes. No, I think that's exactly right. And you don't do these things in order to be saved. You do them because you receive God's grace. To some degree, you do it in gratitude. Mm. You do it in response to, uh, but not... Uh, you don't do it in order to receive God's grace. I mean, in other words, there's a, that a good Calvinist would say, well, we've received God's grace and we respond. But it seems like we can't allow the slightest space to exist between being a, a receiver and a conduit. There cannot be that distinction between the ethics, the practices, and the benefits. And, and again, it's not a works righteousness, but it is the idea that I've only enjoy, I've enjoyed God's grace through you today. That there you go, exactly. Through this human exchange, through this human relationship, yeah. what we, you and I have enjoyed today, we've enjoyed God's grace through one another. It's just pretty rich. Richard, this is wonderful. Uh, I'm so glad we could do this. I don't want to wear you out because I, we, you're going to have to do another hour-long yeah. presentation. Yeah. Yeah. It's been my pleasure. <laughs>